Welcome to Paranormal Coffee Hour. We're your hosts, Jen. And Courtney. And we're pouring you a strong cup of the weird, the wonderful, and the woohoo. On today's Paranormal Coffee Hour, we're talking about the spooky city of Whitewater, Wisconsin. How fun. Exactly. And we have two guests with us today. We have Miss Emily and Mr. Jake Dixon. Say hello. How's it going, gang? Hello. And why have we invited you on a Paranormal Coffee Hour? Well, between the two of us, we have almost a decade of whitewater living experience. And uh, my family actually has pretty deep roots over there in whitewater. The uh, Emerson Historical Cabin is uh, my relatives on my mom's side. So they uh, have been settled down in whitewater since uh, some of the first people. Oh, that's awesome. Didn't even know that. I know. (laughs) All right. So, Jake... Where exactly is Whitewater? Whitewater, Wisconsin is uh, southeast Wisconsin. Um, It's kind of a, if you look at a triangle, it's kind of the point about an hour, hour and 15 between uh, Milwaukee and Madison. Um, And then if you go further east, about 45 minutes, you get to Lake Geneva. But it's right at the south part of the state, um, just north of the border there. Awesome. So for those of you who don't know Whitewater, Wisconsin, it is a town of nearly 15,000 people. That does not include the University of Whitewater. Whitewater itself originated with two separate tribes, the Potawatomi and the Winnebago tribe. Those two tribes lived on the land for quite some time until about 1832, which is when, unfortunately, General Atkinson came through with his army, which included former President Abraham Lincoln. Had nothing better to do at the time. Uh-huh. <laughs> And they decided to move the entire tribes west, trying to push them across the Mississippi River to make room for settlers. There was an account, if you remember, Courtney, of a group of settlers that came from Milwaukee. Yes, we had 20 settlers came from Milwaukee, and it took them six days to make that trip. Holy man, six days. Yeah. Where were these people originally coming from? I know they're from Milwaukee, but they were from another area, weren't they? Um, I believe these ones were coming from out east from the New York-ish area. Which is interesting because a lot of whitewater actually has transplants from out east New York. And I think someone also said Massachusetts. Yeah. Which makes sense. And there's a reason for that. And we're going to get into that in just a second. One of the other things that's important to know about whitewater is that it actually has... As you, if you listen to other podcasts of ours, effigy mounds or burial mounds from the earlier Native Americans, the ancestors to the Potawatomi and the Winnebago. It does not matter what podcast we do lately; those keep popping back up. Have you guys ever been to the burial mounds park in Whitewater? Yeah, when I was younger, my mom grew up in Whitewater, so she told me all about them. What did she tell you about this? I remember she was saying, um, you got to be very careful when you walk around them because of potential spirits and you don't want to interrupt them. And uh, she had also mentioned that there was some questionable building in areas that got awfully close, um, which had uh, caused some some spiritual ruckus potentially. That's interesting. Because one of the things I found when we were researching this was that one of the earlier settlers built their cabin right by the mounds yes there was the first guy came in 1836 elvin foster carve your name in a tree lands yours it doesn't work <laughs> anymore that way there you go guys carve your name in a tree somewhere it's all yours then but then in 1837 samuel <laughs> prince built the first log cabin near the current site of the whitewaters indian mounds park i wonder if it was haunted well i mean when you're building your house on somebody's burial plot it's kind of a given isn't it i guess the one of the things whitewater is well known for especially in 
the Whitewater area is the fact that it's known as Second Salem. Why is that, guys? Well, Whitewater is known as the Second Salem because of all the spooks and kind of haunts in the area. The Witches of Whitewater is something that you'll hear commonly. Uh, They were known to do some seance activity around a water tower that was right smack dab in the middle of campus. That water tower has this gate around it, and the gate has spikes on the top that point inwards versus outwards, which, you know, they say that it was built that way to kind of keep the haunts inside the white water tower area versus keeping people from getting in there. That's fantastic. They put thought into this while building it, and people believed they were keeping something in instead of poo-pooing it. Yeah. Well, and what we found as we were doing research on the Witches of Whitewater was that we have Mary Worth as kind of one of the first self-proclaimed witches, where, I mean, that woman went nuts. So they say Mm -hmm. all she did was put a curse on the Winchester family, but then... There's no records of her being an axe murderess, like her title. That's true. But the family did have a lot of really bad shit happen afterwards. Maybe it's karma. (laughs) So the Winchester family used to own a wheel making or wagon wheel making company in the area. And they were at odds with Mary Worth. And I'm not 100% sure why. It's hard to find exactly the story behind that one. But supposedly, she put a curse on them. And then people started dropping like flies afterwards. Yeah, I believe there was three main people of the Winchester family that just dropped within a year and then their company folded. Yeah. Star and Park has the Witch's Tower in it, which is actually a working water tower. And we got to actually go inside of it, didn't we, Emily? Yep. That tour of Haunted Whitewater was the first group of public people that ever went in that water tower. Oh, seriously? I didn't realize we were the first ones to go in. Yep. We were the first people, you know, just general public to ever visit that place on the inside. Um, And there were, I don't know if you remember this, but there were like some goofy little straw brooms in yes. there. Yes. What the hell was up with the brooms inside? I forgot about it's those. It's the witch's tower. Hello. Yeah, they were literally witch brooms. Yeah. Not even So they were the push bas- brooms. Basams, I guess. Well, and what I found out when I researched the tower itself is when this tower was built, it was built by a private company out of Chicago. And they built it so that the bottom of the tower was the thickness of those walls is eight feet Mm-hmm. which surprises me. But I guess once we stepped in there, you could kind of see it was more narrow than it would normally appear. And then as it goes up, it's stepped up. And as it steps up, it steps up into four feet thickness of walls. So it's quite an incredible. That's a lot. But I guess if you're going to be holding a water tank on top, you need to have the... See, that's my thought, but maybe it's if you want to hold the witches in, not let them out. Well, and part of the other story behind the tower's location, and I don't know if you two have heard this, is that they basically put the tower on top of an old witch's altar that they buried underneath it, like an oak altar, and that they used to have different rituals in that performed prior to the building of the tower in that location. And then Mm -hmm. they continued to do so afterwards. Well, I mean, you can't stop us. Our altar's under there. Get the hell out of the way, peeps. (laughs) Some people think there's witches buried under there, too. Who knows? My next thing that I saw was that there is an evil book under lock and key in the library. Have you guys heard about that? Yeah, that was actually the whole premise of the uh, Witches of Whitewater movie. If you uh, look it up on YouTube, you can see a trailer. However, the university um, was really amazing, and they bought out (laughs) the rights to that movie and shut it down to stop bad publicity. What have you guys heard about this book? Because as students, I'm sure you've heard stories about it. Yeah, so they say the book itself is in the basement of the library, and 
basically all the librarians have to kind of pretend it doesn't exist. But I think as a freshman or sophomore, I probably asked about it. And sure enough, they kind of shut it down and said, you know, we don't really know what you're talking about. It's not here. But that's exactly what they would say. The basement of that library definitely has a little bit of an atmosphere to it. So I would not be surprised if it is down there. Is that Anderson Library? Yeah. Okay. Supposedly that book has all sorts of different incantations in it. And uh, Mm -hmm. I think there was some, like if you looked at it and you didn't didn't know what you were doing, you would die or something. Yeah. Anybody who ever opened it ended up passing in some capacity afterwards. I also heard some of them went insane first. Yeah, there was something about there Mm -hmm. was three students and at least one or two teachers that they know for sure. See, and the interesting thing is is that when I've seen photos or that of this supposed book, they bring out this big book that looks like it could be it, but it's a Catholic hymnal written in Latin. And that's what they swear to God it is. Yeah. But they got to keep it under lock and key. Yeah, it's bizarre. Well, during our live, though, someone pointed out, I mean, it's incantations in Latin. It doesn't have to be Catholic, technically. No. And they could have made it look like a hymnal in order to hide it, especially in a time when people were getting questioned. Right. And who's going to question God over witches? Well, and the other part of it is, is that it's more like a book of shadows or a grimoire for witchcraft. Right. So they would have written the names of the fellow witches of the coven. That, that is book. also what is supposedly... Because no one has any names on these witches that started this town. Is it because they're powerful and probably still existing? At least their family lines. Exactly. Shout out, hey! Jake, are you part of them? <laughs> Wouldn't you like to know? <laughs> I would. <laughs> so in addition to witches and the book that makes people go insane... We also have tunnels that run under the city of Whitewater. Surprise, surprise. In between buildings. And they have been used in the Underground Railroad um, because they run all the way over to Jake's hometown. Right, Jake? Yep. Milton House over there, about 15 minutes west. They've got underground uh, tunnels over there, part of the Underground Railroad. One of the big questions, though, with these tunnels, were they put in for specifically the Underground Railroad or were they put in prior? For the witches. Mm -hmm. So that brings me to this thought then. You've got witches practicing in Whitewater. You've got the Morris Pratt coming in, which we'll talk about in a minute. Mm -hmm. But they need to hide in these tunnels from house to house or water tower to house. Like you're practicing openly, but now you're hiding. I know. So the tunnels themselves, um, in my experience, run kind of straight down Main Street through a lot of the Greek houses. Yeah. The house that I lived in. Had a door that led out to the street, and you could tell it was a tunnel under the street at one point. And then, sure enough, the house across the street had a similar kind of door, closed up street tunnel thing under it. So, I mean, in my experience, the tunnels kind of run, you know, straight down Main Street and connect a lot of the old buildings. Well, that's down a good the road. Thing that somebody at Live brought up are they aqueducts? I mean, I've never heard of aqueducts in Wisconsin, but if you need your water, you need your water. Possibly. But you don't necessarily need to make an aqueduct that large. Oh, no. These tunnels were big enough that people could go through from basement to basement. I know. It's kind of weird because you don't have, I mean, obviously the Underground Railroad would explain part of it. And we do have the Hamilton House in Whitewater, which was part of the Underground Railroad and is on Main Street. It just seems like there's so many more tunnels than what would have been needed. Yeah. And like, when did they get put there? Right. And how far do they exactly go? 
Well, that's right. Because I remember you saying some of these are bricked off, blocked off mm-hmm. now. Yeah. So nobody really can see how far they go. They're anymore. not mapped. Unless we use ground penetrating radar. Huh. There we go. Field if anyone trip. wants to donate to that, we'll get on I'm that. I'm sure it's cheap. So how many of you guys know about spiritualism? What do you know? I know we went to the White Chapel, but... The White Star Church up in yep. Marconi. That was pretty cool. That was interesting. Um, spiritualism actually started in Hydesville, New York with the Fox Sisters. It was in 1848. Now the Fox Sisters, some people think that they were just putting on a show. And some of spiritualism was a bit showy, but it is an actual religion. It's a religion, from what I understand, that bridges both Christianity and spiritualist beliefs, which is the belief that we all have the power to commune with the dead in order to get information that will help us to be better human beings. Oh, we really need that now. I know. (laughs) Here's the crazy thing. Most people don't know. Wisconsin became one of the biggest locations for spiritualism in the country. And that is fascinating. Mm-hmm. What happened was we have Nathaniel Talmadge. He was a senator from New York. He was appointed the third governor of the Wisconsin Territory. Not so, yet a state. Not yet a state. So this was in 1845. Wisconsin would become a state in 1848. Talmadge had recently purchased land in the territory of Wisconsin in preparation for retirement. But he decided to move his family there when he accepted the governorship. Well, that's nice. They could come. Mm-hmm. Nathaniel's son, William, who was attending law school and was 19 at the time, decided to go home and visit his family in this new territory in 1845. He fell in love with the property on the hill, telling his family that one day when he died, he wanted to be buried there. Creepy shit. Because guess what? Two weeks later, William's life came to an abrupt end and unexpectedly, and he was buried in his spot at the top of the hill, which is now one of the cemeteries. Hillside. Yep. Hillside Cemetery in Whitewater. In 1853, Nathaniel became a devout spiritualist. And in a book published that year, a letter Talmadge wrote to one of the authors described how his youngest daughter, Emily, then 13, was being taught by spirits how to play the piano. Prodigy was not a word back then. No. But damn it, if they can do that. I Trust me, I've got a list then. Let's get going. Yeah, exactly. Morris Pratt, who was another New Yorker, emigrated to Wisconsin in the 1850s, and he built a successful farm in the Whitewater area. He had a number of neighboring families who frequented the seances in Lake Mills. Did you guys know that Lake Mills had a whole bunch of psychics and mediums doing seances there? You know, I wasn't aware of that. But it is darn close to Whitewater. It is. It's like 34 minutes away, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was weird. I had never known Lake Mills to be an area for seances, but it was. They actually brought in some of the best mediums from around the country to commune with the dead. And they would do this in people's homes. Yeah, I guess from my knowledge, it just sounds like Whitewater. Something about the energy there. They, uh, it's always been a very spiritual place, going back to the Native Americans um, and some of those burial grounds. Mm -hmm. So Morris Pratt was known to frequent these seances. He was also known to frequently argue with ministers who criticized the spiritualist religion. You don't say. I know. He often got kicked out of a church. Well, that's now not very kind. We're supposed <laughs> to love our brothers and sisters. Unless they have different opinions than us. See ya. Morris was frustrated as all hell, decided he wanted to teach what he believed were the scientific truths of the spirit life. So he gave him the finger. <laughs> Basically. During a seance in the early 1880s, he vowed that if he ever became wealthy, he would dedicate much of his money to spiritualism. Good. So now what? Well, <laughs> lucky him. He met a very important woman named Mary Hayes Chenoweth. 
She was only 27 years old, and she discovered she had the ability to peer into people's bodies and see the diseases that were ailing them. I That is awesome. Today, we would call this psychic surgery, and it is actually still taught by the Spiritualist Union. And you don't even get any good drugs with this one. Not at all. But what Mary would do for Mr. Pratt is that when she heard him say this in a seance that they both were attending at the same time, she decided to give him very important information. So in other words, she's like, bet. Yep. Game on. (laughs) So basically what she said to Pratt was, well, if I intend to make you wealthy, will you carry out your promise? And he's like, uh, yeah. Oh, shit, what'd I do? (laughs) He's like, sure. I don't even think he believed her completely. Probably not. So you know what she did? She told him and her two sons. So she had insurance in this bed where there was going to be a large deposit of iron ore. Money. She told him that this iron ore would be found in northern Wisconsin and Michigan's Upper Peninsula. She said she was claimed to have been guided to the land by her controlling spirit or spirit guide is what I would call it. Uh, hers was an old German professor, by the way. Oh, my God. Did he <laughs> yell at her? Oh, that so angry. Calm down. <laughs> and she would do it in trance. She cannot only do psychic surgery, but she's also a trance medium. That's so awesome. I wonder if she spoke in German, too. What the hell is this lady saying? (laughs) So Pratt and Mary's sons did as Mary instructed. And the Hayes Brothers Company, with Pratt as a stockholder, bought the land and opened the Ashland Ore Mine and began digging. Now, at first, for the first couple of years, they didn't find anything. What a bust. Yeah. So Morris Pratt went to Mary and he's like, "Uh, Mary, we're not finding a damn thing. He didn't believe second guess. Then in 1886, a discovery was made. The land Mary recommended was found to be the heart of the massive Gojibik Iron Range. It's filled with the highest grade Bessemer ore, some of the best in the region. And literally overnight, they They became rich. So of course, is he going to follow through? Hell yeah. Yes, he does. Morris Pratt decides to fulfill his promise. And he laid the foundation for a building in Whitewater without knowing exactly what purpose it was going to serve. I love that. We're just going to build this. We don't know what we're going to do with it yet. It's like Field of Dreams, build it and they shall come. Valid. Mm -hmm. So the locals used to scoff at him for this. He said, I made a vow before I made my investment that I would erect a temple to the spirit world with a share of the profits I was to realize, and I intend to do so. So upon its completion, Pratt and his wife left their farm. They moved in to occupy several rooms within the ornate three-story building, and they held public seances there for many years. He decided to make it the Mecca of modern spiritualism. So he opened the world's only school dedicated to the study of the spirit world. I just caught something. The public was able to come to the seances, so they had a separate room, I'm assuming, on the first or second floor for these seances? They did. Okay. Because on the third floor... That was only for the special people. It was. And the special people in a good way? Yeah, the special people in a good way. (laughs) I mean, everybody's special, right? It was a white room. Everything had to be white. Mm Mm-hmm. Including your clothes. Uh huh. And it was used for only fellow member spiritualists and for only their seances. So you stupid people that didn't believe weren't allowed 
Right. The other part of it is, is that if you know anything about spiritualism, they used to have like the ectoplasmic stuff coming out of people's mouths. Oh, they would Slimer? do that, that photography. <laughs> have you guys ever seen that before, Em and Jake? That ectoplasm? I have to show you some pictures of it. They would do photography and it would show almost like this gunk coming out of people's mouths. And that was often found to be staged. There was a lot of like knockings and stuff like that too. That was also found to be staged. What a bummer. But actual spiritualists doing mediumship work was not. So the Morris Pratt Institute here, that actually is how the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater came to be. And this building that you're talking about, I believe, might be Higher Hall. Um, it actually got demolished. Oh, okay. It's, it was the phone company. It was a really gorgeous building. It was kind of, you know how Whitewater has a lot of Italianate style, kind of like your old sorority house, mm -hmm. that kind of a style to it. This building was built in a very similar style. However, spiritualism was incredibly popular up until the Depression. And then in the late 20s, early 30s, it sort of fell to the wayside because of the Depression. And so they ended up pulling down the Morris Pratt building in the 1960s. Yes. And they put a one-story telephone company on top of it. But Morris Pratt actually didn't live to see the school come into fruition. He died before that happened. It's only, what was it, a week or two? No, it was like a year before it actually. It? But he had a board of people put in place so that when he did die, they didn't just die with him. And to this day, they are still a secret society, the board is. No one knows no who one they are. On it. Are you on the board, Jake? Wouldn't you like to know? <laughs> I would, yes. Morris Pratt himself is also buried in white water. He is located in Hillside Cemetery. And part of the reason we bring up the Morris Pratt Institute is because the Whitewater locals used to call it the Spook Temple. Mm -hmm. And they feel that part of the paranormal activity that's happening in Whitewater is related to the fact that that existed. Not the witches. So, I mean, leave them ladies alone and men because men can be witches. It's because of the spook tower that they tore down. Yeah. But they say that, did they open up a portal and not close it? I mean, seances can. This is a school you'd think they would have taught them how to close them. Well, and the Spiritualist Union teaches proper seance procedure. At least they do now. So needless to say, this location was an incredibly forward thinking place. Extremely. Mm -hmm. Which makes me wonder why, because the depression, why was it no longer a thing? Instead, they turned to their God to help them out of this? I, I don't know. I mean, spiritualists still believed in God. Some of them did, yes. But many of them. Why did this all of a sudden just die? I don't know. Technically, it didn't die. It died in that city. They just moved to Milwaukee. They did. The Morris Pratt Institute does still exist. It's located in Milwaukee. Yeah, it's still there. But they believe that this location is the reason for so much of the, the paranormal activity. And when when you look at the location of it, it would have been downtown Whitewater. So one of the most interesting things about Whitewater is it has three different cemeteries. And of course, anytime you take and make a line between three dots, it can form a triangle. Or I think it was Kent that said it should. It should. What's interesting, though, about this triangle is it's a perfect isosceles triangle. And in the cemeteries, we have some very, very notable people that either um, contributed to the development of Whitewater or to the spookiness of Whitewater. Hmm. So I want to talk to you a little bit about the poisonous women of Whitewater. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. I could tell you a thing or two about those. <laughs> 
Anyway, the first one I want to talk about is Nellie Horan. Good old Nellie. Nellie Horan was suspected of murdering her parents and siblings with strychnine poisoning between 1882 and 1884. All for about $127,000 of today's worth. Nellie is buried in Calvary Cemetery in Whitewater. And authorities thought that uh, when this was all going on with the family, that someone was out to get the family. But they did not suspect that it was an inside job. No, which was really fascinating, reading the article they had on it. So basically what happens is... Nellie and her sisters, Anna and Agnes, and their parents, Joseph and Judith, they're all interred in Calvary. First, she took out Judith. Took her out. In 1882. Not on a date. Nope, not on a date. Mm -hmm. Her death was unexpected and described as having been in great agony with symptoms acknowledged by physicians at the time as being consistent with poisoning. But there was no reason to suspect foul play, so no investigation was conducted. Joseph died six weeks later. He fell ill suddenly and expired during terrible spasms and convulsions, as reported by the New York Times. They left their money to their four unmarried daughters. Yes, there was also another daughter, Gertrude, who didn't live in Whitewater. So Anna, Nellie, and Agnes, as the youngest, Agnes was left the largest share. They felt bad for her. At Joseph's funeral, Agnes was said to be hysterical and threw herself upon her father's grave. Just over two months later, Agnes herself was dead at the age of 17. Her share of the inheritance passed on to her remaining sisters. Whitewater authorities began to think someone had it out for the Horn family, though they were unable to identify any suspects or motives. For Anna and Nellie, life returned to some semblance of normal after that. Anna was a dressmaker, and Nellie worked as a typesetter for a local newspaper called The Register. There were no more mysterious deaths for a couple years. The residents of Whitewater forgot about the tragedy that befell the Horan family. Then, on November 30th, 1884, Anna suddenly fell ill. Nellie strikes again. After a few days, Anna asked her business partner, Miss Wakeman, to send for her sister. When Nellie arrived, she gave Anna a dose of what was supposed to be opium powder. But after much suffering, Anna was dead just hours later on December 2nd, 1884. The coroner found strychnine in her stomach. It is believed that some person has been pursuing the family for years and that Miss Anna is the fourth victim, said Milwaukee Daily Journal. Who that person is? Nobody pretends to say with enough facts to warrant an opinion. Officers are understood to be at work on the case and should the chemist establish the girl was poisoned, some startling developments may be expected. The public is greatly mystified. Dumbasses. <laughs> Funeral preparations were underway when a young girl confessed to seeing Nellie buying strychnine at the drugstore a few days prior to Anna's death. Does she not know snitches get stitches? <laughs> The contents, Did she die? Oh, it doesn't say. Okay. The contents of Anna's stomach were sent to specialist Professor Bodie in Milwaukee for chemical analysis who confirmed the presence of the poison. Nellie was soon charged with her sister's death. At her trial, Nellie said she bought the poison to deal with the rats at the office of the register. Though not beautiful, the New York Times wrote of her appearance in court, tall and graceful, she was intelligent and striking. The jury had a difficult time believing she could have committed murder and deliberated a mere 12 minutes before acquitting her. The New York Times reported there was a great sensation in court. The accused girl shook hands with the judge, jury, and counsel and left for Whitewater with her sister and the young man to whom she was to have married and who stuck to her through the whole trial. Some papers falsely reported that upon the discovery of strychnine in Anna's stomach, Nellie ingested the poison 
poison herself and confessed to murdering her family, as well as an unknown fifth victim. In fact, after she was acquitted, Nellie married a man named John Burns and lived well into her 70s. She died of natural causes on October 23, 1938, and she was buried at Calvary with her family. What about her sister Gertrude? Do we know anything? Um, Other than Gertrude's not buried there, they really don't say. I'm wondering if Gertrude had been killed, if they would have figured out it was Nellie at that point. Calvary. That's the one that's right in the middle of the Whitewater campus. Oh, is it? Mm-hmm. Oh, I was wondering which one was considered in the middle of it. Yep, that's the one that's on campus. Yeah, it's by the sports center or something it says. Yep, just casually placed between the uh, Williams Center and the dorms. Oh, fantastic. So, you know. Walk lo- through a cemetery on your way. A lot of foot traffic over there. That's the one with all the gum on the fence that everybody puts the gum on as they walk past the cemetery to their oh. to get their lunch. Keeping spirits I, in. I mean, they're garbage cans. Why? We'll just stick her here. Because you need to keep the damn spirits in. There to help them stuck. <laughs> I got stuck on the gum. But don't worry. Nellie's not the only one using poison in Whitewater. And not the only one who is buried in Calvary Cemetery either. Talk about drop dead gorgeous, right? <laughs> also in Calvary Cemetery with Miss Nellie is another poisonous woman Known as the Poison Widow, her name is Myrtle Shod, and her husband, poor guy, was Edward. The Shods boarded rooms to students attending the then state normal school. They did this for extra money. Unfortunately, Myrtle fell in love with a young man, Ernest Kufel. She decided she would slip strychnine into her husband's prune juice on March 18th. <sighs> 1922. That's right, because if he didn't die, he'd have the shits. <laughs> the coroner attributed Edward's death to a stomach flu. No kidding. No one suspected Myrtle. Kufel, her romance at the time, transferred to a different campus. Do you think he got scared? I mean, feet don't fail me now. <laughs> and eventually moved to a farm in Minnesota. He and Myrtle continued to write, making plans for her to join him in Minnesota and get married. His letters hinted that Myrtle's children would not be welcomed. So she hatched a plan. I feel like that's a dick move. I think he was setting her up, honestly. In September of 1923, Myrtle and her kids got into the car to take a ride into the country. Her 16-year-old son, Ralph, was at the wheel. She decided to give each of her children a bonbon filled with strychnine. That's why I don't like chocolate. The poison would send the children into convulsions. Ralph would crash the car... And their deaths would be blamed on the accident. What about her? Did she honestly think she was going to live through that? Maybe she she was going to jump, tuck and roll? I mean, cars didn't go that fast back then either. So. That's true. She was hoping then after the accident she could marry Ernst. Ralph did ingest some of the strychnine and he did crash. But the children all survived. Myrtle told police she had received the candy from a door-to-door salesman from Milwaukee. Ouch. Goddamn door-to-door chocolate salesman. They launched a manhunt, but the district attorney wasn't buying Myrtle's story. Oh, so he caught on to this one. Mm -hmm. He eventually coaxed a confession from her. Investigators exhumed Edward and the autopsy revealed Myrtle's handiwork. She was found guilty and sentenced to the Wapan prison. She only spent a few years there, though, before she charmed her way out and started a new family in Illinois. Those lucky kids. Edward Shod was buried in Hillside Cemetery. 
So these are two women that are buried in Calvary Cemetery. Then we have Morris Pratt, who's over in the Hillside Cemetery. And don't forget William at Hillside. He started it oh, all. that's right. And then we have one other cemetery, which is Oak Grove Cemetery. So if we connect the dots to all these cemeteries, we said we formed that perfect isosceles triangle. One of the things I read is if you include the effigy mounds in this yep. and you connect it from, let's say, Oak Grove to the effigy mounds back to Calvary Cemetery, it would actually make a perfect pyramid. Does that bring in the aliens then within their pyramids? I don't know, because we have had UFO sightings in the area. No kidding. I mean, mm-hmm. mostly out towards the Milwaukee area. No, mostly out towards the outskirts of Whitewater by closer to the Kettle Moraine. Oh, you don't say. Mm-hmm. That's also where they get like Beast of Bray Road sightings too. Well, I mean, it's the Kettle Moraine. Just shake up whatever you want. It's like an eight ball. Mm-hmm. What are we getting today? Right. But Whitewater is connected to the Kettle Moraine and we'll talk about it in a minute. But the triangle will get you focused back in there, Courtney. The triangle itself has a lot of paranormal activity in it and around it. Am I right, guys? Mm-hmm. Big time. We have like the Star and Park where the Witch's Tower or the Water Tower, but known as a Witch's Tower, is located. We have a lot of the homes that are now often fraternities or sororities, um, the older homes that were part of either the Underground Railroad or just part of some of the earlier settlers of white water. Was the pyramid then also haunted or is it just kind of stick in the isosceles? It doesn't stick in the isosceles. It would stick out but from it. I'm saying is then everything in the pyramid side. Pretty much everything in white water is pretty well haunted. So I mean this triangle is just rather here and or there. Some of the worst hauntings are within the triangle. Okay, good to know. Within the witch's triangle. Um, In terms of haunting, I mean with all these college kids, there's all sorts of ghosting going on these days. Well, and that was actually something not <laughs> ghosting, so to speak, but we were talking about how the amount with a university in the city, especially with it like in the center of the city, you have a lot of alcohol consumption. Yes. And alcohol consumption tends to bring down people's low energy. Yeah. It, it tends to bring down people's like natural frequency to a lower frequency, which then allows more lower frequency paranormal activity to exist because it can feed off of that low energy. It's like a feeding ground then. Mm-hmm. Sounds like a horror movie in the making. As we move from downtown Whitewater and the Witch's Triangle out into the outskirts of Whitewater, we have Whitewater Lake. Who wants to go swimming? So we don't just have paranormal activity. We don't have just witches. We also have a cryptid out in this lake. Em, I know you used to drive school bus around Whitewater. What is this area like? So the Whitewater Lake area is just about in the Kettle Moraine State Park. You know, my route was twisty, turny, narrow roads because it was in the forest. But Whitewater Lake, it sits lower than the land all around it. So so it's a deep ass lake. Yeah. Okay. Um. So the forest is really built up all around it. It's not like all of the houses have tons of stairs to get down to the water. Okay. So the, the land itself sits up pretty high compared yeah. to the lake. Yep, exactly. Okay. It is a pretty big lake. Yeah, but it it's far out there. Like it's a good drive to get over there because it's right in the state forest. So it's pretty secluded. It, it's a beautiful looking lake. I have a picture of it in front of me, and it's really quite pretty. One of the stories with the Whitewater Lake goes back to the 1920s, and I'm gonna have Courtney tell you this one. So a few miles south of the city is Whitewater Lake where in 1923, fishermen claimed a large creature with tentacles overturned their boat and dragged them under. We got the kraken in the lake. The fuck? (laughs) They fought against it and eventually broke free, but found themselves covered in small bite marks. Residents of Whitewater Lake also tell the story of a series of strange 
unspecified events that happened over the summer of 1944. To make it stop, men from the area gathered at a small local cemetery, I mean, it does not say which cemetery this is either, where they are said to have dug up all the coffins there that had been buried vertically in the ground. Vertical coffins? Yeah. You tell me where there are vertical coffins. I mean, in places where they're worried about space, but that's not usually in the U.S. And it is a small local cemetery. It's not named. How the hell? I'm assuming these are unmarked graves. How would they know that these graves were there? Right. Witches. Because here's the thing about burials in history. They would bury a person facing up so that they could see up and ascend towards heaven. And the soul could go out their mouth and Correct. go up. So why bury them vertically? Well, then why didn't they bury them upside down? Maybe they just wanted to do a spiritual Congo line. That's an idea that has never popped up. That's a <laughs> good one. <laughs> Nobody's going anywhere. We're staying here. <laughs> We're dancing. The men brought the coffins back to the lake, weighed them down with rocks, and threw them in. That put an end to whatever strange occurrences had been plaguing those who lived on the lake. Decades later, in 1992, three Whitewater students who were renting a house on the lake stumbled upon a late-night ritual being performed on the beach by four men, dressed in strange black clothes. They were chanting and swaying. At first, the students just thought the men were drunk. <laughs> what? In drunk? Way. But then, a thick fog rolled in from the lake, and a green light glowed through it. We heard the water start splashing in this deep gurgling noise, one of the students said. Their names were withheld from the reports as they were scared and wished to remain unidentified for their safety. We all just looked at each other, but when we heard this slurping sound and saw something coming out of the water, we ran like hell. Another resident also witnessed the incident and called the police. They weren't able to respond right away, but by the time they arrived in the morning, the group was gone. On the beach, however, they found the remains of the ritual. Small bones and rocks arranged in strange patterns in the sand. Cult activity was suspected, which had also been prevalent in an area just a few miles away where the Beast of Bray Road was terrorizing residents of the Elkhorn community around the same time. Did the experiments to pierce the veil and reveal the mysteries of the spirit world inside Pratt's restricted inner sanctum open the doors for sinister energies to take hold in Whitewater? Or is it that the town's unusual history, as it is whispered around the UW-Whitewater campus year after year, is filled with just enough mystery that our imaginations can't resist filling in the blanks? So the cops get called and can't come out till the next fucking morning? Were the cops in it? Were they part of the ritual? That's a valid point. I mean, come on. You call the cops out. Somebody usually comes out. Yeah. I'm, wouldn't this kind of be a trespassing thing? Or is the lake open 24-7? Unless the people calling sounded drunk. Usually you'd want to break that up. So what's the mysteries that they tell you as UW-Whitewater students about the settling of Whitewater? Do you guys know anything? Yeah, it's a little bit more of, you know, don't mess with the cemetery. Don't mess with the witch tower. Go get drunk for cheap so ghosts can feed off your low energy. Yeah. <laughs> the bars are cheap. Don't ask questions. Anything about the lake that you've heard? You know, students don't really go out to the lake except for usually like the first weekend in May. There's oh. always been like a beach party the first Saturday in May when, you know, everybody heads out to the beach because it's actually 60 degrees out all day. But beyond that, like students really don't go out there. Is it because it's just privately owned? No, no, it's a public beach. It's just more of a drive. And okay. I think people would rather drink in their yards than, you know, drive 15 minutes out to go drink. Plus, it's a pretty big liability to get a bunch of drunk college kids on, mm -hmm. on water that's pretty deep. I think you have to pay to park there. Interesting. The cryptid's not there in May. 
Although I do think it's kind of interesting that they said that it was college kids that were renting a place, and then they said they wanted to stay anonymous. And it's like, how many college kids rent a place on a lake? Yeah, that's kind of what I was wondering, too. Especially since, you know, are they college kids from UW-Whitewater, or are they from elsewhere? If they're from elsewhere, maybe, but I don't think Mm -hmm. Whitewater students would rent a place 15 minutes from their own. Most of that area is either like residential homes or, mm-hmm. you know, lake houses. Right. Being close enough to Illinois, the Alcorn kind of whitewater area brings in a lot of folks from Chicagoland to have their lake houses, quote unquote, up north. Yeah. The last thing we're going to talk about is actually one of the creepiest things I think we encountered that probably nobody knows about in whitewater. And that is the Dade and Penwell Law Office that we visited on the Spooks tour. I don't know if you remember this place, Emily. It was a law office, just a small little home, stone brick kind of place. Super cute, unassuming, until you start to hear the story about what they discovered in their basement. Do you remember this? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. This this story stuck with me from that tour. Me too. I feel like you, you it, like can't it should not forget this story. <laughs> Have you ever told this to Jake? Probably. So when we were on the tour, we were getting the information from one of the lawyers of the law office that when they moved into this location several years ago, they went down into their basement and realized that they were not able to get into one of the rooms in their basement. They didn't have a key for it. So they ended up getting a locksmith. The locksmith opened up the room and they discovered there was a whole bunch of evidence files located in that room. But we're not just talking any evidence files. We're talking about boxes and boxes of evidence from none other than the Ed Gein trial. How did Ed Gein stuff get to Whitewater? You remember? That's a great question. Where did that originate? Was that the Milwaukee land area? The trial itself was in Milwaukee. Okay. So Mm -hmm. they couldn't do the trial in the area because everybody in the town was too close to the case. There wasn't anybody without a bias. So right. they had to take the case, you know, counties over to find an unbiased group of people. And so they took it to Milwaukee. They, they took it to Milwaukee. And, mm-hmm. you know, for whatever reason, after the trial, this evidence found its way to Whitewater. It did. Because what happened is the judge on the case, Robert Gomer, he... Was he from like the Walworth County area? Yeah. He got stuck with the evidence because they didn't have a crime lab like they Short do straw. now. <laughs> so he got stuck with the, the, the Ed Gein evidence and he had to find a, a secure location for it. So... I don't know if he was practicing law or if he had friends that were lawyers in this office, but he located the evidence to this basement of this law office. And they had left it in there basically in a secured room, which makes sense to secure the room. I've only bought a house once in my life, but even when I look at apartments, I check every damn room. You're going to buy a house that's got a locked door and then not open it till the house is bought? Well, I mean, it's not really their house. It's their office, but... Same story. I know. (laughs) But what happened is they bought this law office and and they got evidence with it. So they have like necklaces of teeth. Lamps. Lamps. I believe there was a bowl and some silverware. Mm -hmm. And and it (gasps) ain't no silver that made that silverware. Do they have the meat suits? I don't know. I don't know for sure. Yeah. But they have a lot of the human remains evidence 
from the Ed Gein trial. And for those of you who aren't familiar with Ed Gein, he's a Wisconsin psychopath. <laughs> Not far did he live from where we are currently recording about an hour from here yep. in Plainfield. And that's actually where he took his victims. I did know the family that had to secure the evidence before it went to court in their barn um, by Plainfield. Everywhere. Mm-hmm. So it was in a barn in Plainfield being secured there by the sheriff. And then it got transferred down to Milwaukee because, of course, like Emily said, they couldn't hold the trial in Plainfield because they couldn't have an unbiased jury. And then they held it in Milwaukee and then somehow it ended up in, in Whitewater for the evidence. So the reason we bring this up is because this law office has horrific paranormal activity. The lawyer was saying that there were always spooks in there. They don't use the upstairs and, you know, every night around nine o'clock, it gets a little bit foggy in there. Yes. Something about maybe like little kid ghosts or something. Yeah. I they almost remember. Stuff out of the corners of their eye they'll right. see. Mm-hmm. So they can't use the basement. They don't use the upstairs. <laughs> this is getting better. Right. So the lawyer who works in that office said, man, this is out of hand. I can't I can't work with this. So he called in a psychic medium to come in, see what the heck is going on there. And he said that that psychic medium was out of that building yes. faster than they could get to the bar down the street and get a beer. Yes. She's got a good memory. There's parts I don't remember. Oh, my God. So the lawyer and the medium's husband or whatever, they went down to the bar to let her do her thing. And sure enough, she was right behind them. She lasted a couple minutes in there. And she said she could feel all of the victims through Mm -hmm. the evidence from those boxes. And she said it was too heavy. It was too dark. And she could not be in there. Well, I believe that because, I mean, we discussed that live. Mm -hmm. What are you supposed to do with this? Yeah. And that is it. I mean, I don't know what legally what they're supposed to be able to do with it if they have to hang on to it for a certain period of time. Well, I think that case is wrapped up here. Well, I know you would think they're beyond the statute of limitations kind of Mm -hmm. thing. Like you got to you can let it go now. But you can't be like, oh, this is your finger. Bear it back. This is you. I mean, (laughs) what do you do? Just take it to the dump? Yeah, I know. (laughs) Or like bury it somewhere. Somebody was talking about giving them a burial ritual or even a cremation right and then and then some you know something, something to help them yeah. pass, to honor them pass on yeah i know that they're still part of the tour so i that's know that's unfortunate i know they're still part of the tour um i don't know if the evidence is still there even if the evidence wasn't still there probably still a haunted location just because of the fact that it had been there and it could stay there it you know that's the thing with spirits once they're in a location they get to decide well that and they were making money off of it and it was became entertainment now i don't think they were i don't think they were making any money off of it i think all the money if i remember correctly went to the chamber with the chamber tour yeah yeah, yeah no the people on the tour weren't no nobody on the tour was making money from nobody it. was profiting off it mm-hmm. they were you know paying for the bus and that's something nice it was just least. something that they were telling people it's almost a piece of historical information in mm-hmm. some ways to know that, that that evidence was there or is there. But at the same time, I mean, they're being honest about the fact that they're experiencing some pretty crazy stuff. Yeah, you didn't even tell us about the upstairs too. <laughs> I forgot about the upstairs. I just remember hearing about in the basement, they would have almost like, I don't even know how to describe it, it would look like a red, like glowing type of ectoplasm no like a almost like a cord in midair like glowing red and they would have energy just there like glowing and they would have really weird things i want to say he talked about something growling at them at one point but in the basement when we walked around to the back of the building and you could see it was like a drive out garage from the basement yep it was just like do not open that door 
because it, you could feel there was like a caged animal in that building. It was awful. I don't know how they work in there. So my question is then, was it haunted before and this escalated it? I think that was the case. I agree. It's in the triangle as far as I understand. Mm-hmm. It probably was haunted to begin with. And then let's just throw lighter fluid on right. that fire. Whole case of it. Yeah. But that building really it stuck out to all of us clearly. Mm-hmm. Because it was like, are you kidding me? (laughs) I guess I assumed that boxes and boxes of evidence that we all know is horrific evidence because it's, I mean, the butcher of Plainfield. Right. They They made how many movies about them? uh, Psycho, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Silence of the Lambs. Silence of the Lambs. Yep. Those were all based off of Ed Gein. So my question is, was the barn where it was originally stored with the sheriff, was that haunted also? Yes. They started having paranormal activity once the evidence was in there, and then it ended once the evidence left. I knew that person because I was connected to somebody who, it was their family that had that. They were the sheriff of the time. So they got the joy of holding all the evidence in their barn. Wow. Yeah. So yeah, then it ends up down in Whitewater. So Whitewater has a lot of creepy shit. Oh, yeah. And I think part of it is perpetuated not only by the stories that are passed down from student to student at the university, the low level energy that's there. Yeah. Um, We got the witches Mm -hmm. that proclaimed it be in their town. We've got the Morris Pratt. Who might have opened a portal and not closed it. We've got the Indian burials. Let's go straight to the beginning. Mm -hmm. I mean, how many of those got dug up? Probably as many as the ones around here. And then we have the the lake creature. Oh, we have. The kettle moraine. It's just like a great pot of It's a perfect shit storm. Yeah. (laughs) It is a shit storm of paranormal activity in Whitewater. I'm sitting here thinking at this point, like, people in Whitewater drink because there's ghosts? Or are there ghosts because people drink so much? That's a valid question. I like that question. That's a great question. Because, I mean, I know from living in my sorority house for two years, like, there was a lot of energy in that old house, but Mm -hmm. it felt louder when the house was empty. So when I stayed there in the summer, kind of by myself, or when there weren't as many people in there, it's almost like the spirits that were in the house were able to kind of do their own thing. But then you throw 20 girls in there and, Hmm. you know, it gets... And it's always young... Young adults who uh, have fresh, a lot of energy. Well, yeah, and it's uh, kind of fresh blood rotated through, and it's mm-hmm. and it's kind of ridiculous how how cheap and how everywhere it is for you. Like how you're. Are you talking about drinking or the girls in the house? Uh, <laughs> drinking. Okay. <laughs> and maybe the girls. Women are never cheap. Because <laughs> yeah, in my experience, the empty weekends were always the loudest, mm-hmm. spook wise. So. Is it because you couldn't blame it on somebody else? Or is it because they didn't want the people there and they were happy to have the house back to themselves? Or is it because you're sensitive on top of it? Mm. You know, I think the sensitivity added an extra layer (laughs) to it. There's a lot of questions, though. And that's usually how we end our podcast is with a lot of questions. Yeah, we never really have any hardcore. Uh, It's not meant to have hardcore answers. It's just meant to get people thinking. Well, they do call alcohol spirits. They do. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. So is it the alcohol consumption at a university that has a tremendous amount of paranormal activity? Is it fueling the paranormal activity or is the paranormal activity fueling the alcohol? Like Emily said. Symbiotic relationship. Oh. <laughs> at this point. But I think you've got a good point there, Jen, by saying every new group of freshmen that come into the university and come into this town, like these stories get passed down and mm-hmm. they don't quite die. Whereas... 
the regular residents of Whitewater at this point. They don't quite care. It's right. the new folks coming in that are interested and kind of keep the stories And clearly moving. the university is a little bit concerned because they wouldn't have shut down the movie The Witches of Whitewater if they weren't. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. I was wondering what happened. Thank you for clarifying that, Jake, because I saw the trailer for it and I was like, well, what, where's the movie? Right. And it does not say on any of the websites that are attached to that movie who shut it down. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and the other interesting fact was, I don't know if you remember this, Emily, there had been that man in like 2008 that was barely clad, so pretty much naked, in the witch's tower that went after the water commissioner and actually sent him to the hospital in an ambulance because he was supposedly trying to rid the town of its witches. Was he trying to climb the water tower at one point, too? He was actually in the water tower. And that's the question. Like, how the fuck did he get in? It's under a lock and key. Both. Both the gate and... The tower itself are under mega lock and key. Mm-hmm. Ah, but how did the witches get there? I don't know. Hmm. But yeah, he attacked because he, when the water commissioner opened the door to the tower, the man leapt out at him. <laughs> Surprise! And he had a, he had been climbing the tower, but he had actually been climbing it from the inside. The inside. Yep. Oh, fantastic. Isn't that creepy? <laughs> Half naked man launches himself <laughs> at you. He had a weapon of some sort in his hands. I forget if it was a knife or what exactly it was. It wasn't. It wasn't a gun. It was something he could stab him with. I just don't know if it was a knife exactly. This almost sounds like it should be in Florida, not Wisconsin. I know. <laughs> I know. All the weird shit happens in Florida. No, but the water commissioner ended up going to the hospital in an ambulance. He survived. When they got the man into the police car, the police asked him, like, why the hell did you do that? And the guy is like, I don't remember. It was almost like he was under a trance. Oh. He claims he has no memory of wanting to do that. Huh. Yeah. Weird. Weird white water. Yep. So here we are ending our podcast with more questions and answers. And it's a good time to put, put down, down your coffee. Put it down. Think to yourself, why the hell is Whitewater so damn haunted? Do you want to go there? Do you want to experience it for yourself? Give us a call. We'll go. Yeah. I think in October, we'd like to take another tour with the Whitewater Chamber of Commerce. That could be good. That's when they do it. Great local restaurants, let's be real. Oh, Second Salem's fantastic. Love their beer, love their food. Lots of other great restaurants in the area. So, ladies and gentlemen, once again, we end our podcast. Keep it weird, keep it wonderful, and keep it woohoo.